in Time magazine three weeks ago, um, they ran an article that they run, it seems, every year, which outlines ten ideas that are shaping your world. Uh, there we go, that's the uh, front page of the magazine. Um, at least shaping America, not necessarily the world. Um, and it's a fascinating snapshot, I found, for life at the moment. Uh, the first couple in particular, I thought were very interesting. You're going to have to wait for the second one until I can squeeze it into another sermon. Um, but the first one, I thought was particularly interesting for, for our passage today. And it says that living alone is the new norm. Let me quote. It says, the extraordinary rise of solitary living is the biggest social change that we've neglected to identify let alone examine. So it quotes that 28% of Americans live alone now and choose to do so. And in Britain it's even more. 34% of Brits live alone and choose to do so. Why is that? You might well ask. Well, the American professor of sociology who wrote it, named Eric Kleinberg, says this. He says, After all, living alone serves a purpose. It helps us pursue sacred modern values. Individual freedom personal control and self-realisation that carry us from adolescence to our final days. Living alone allows us to do what we want, when we want, and on our own terms. So it's a lifestyle choice that people are making, deliberately making, so they can enjoy personal freedom. They can have personal control. They can be the boss of their own lives and do what they want to do, when they want to do it. And so no wonder you see isolation and loneliness and depression is on the increase as well. But that's because people are choosing to live alone. And when the air that we breathe is all about the choices that we make and being in control of our own lives, doing what we want to do when we want to do it, doing things on our own terms, then it's no wonder that verse 39 and 40 jar so strongly when we read them. For this reason they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, it's from Isaiah 6, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. You see, when the air that we breathe is all about being able to make our own choices and to be in control of our own lives and where we put our, our trust and our faith and our values and we see that, and we find that quite hard I think, Because Isaiah and John are saying they could not believe. Verse 37 to 41. And of course we think we're in control. We think it's on our terms. And at the heart of their unbelief unbelief here sits, we see, a judgment from God on a people who were meant to know him. Despite verse 37, despite all the signs that they've seen, the, the glory that's been revealed, water into wine, official sons being healed, Uh, blind men's eyes being opened, dead men being raised, they still would not believe in him, verse 37. Why? Well, Isaiah quotes, uh, John quotes from Isaiah again, sorry, chapter 53, this was to fulfil the word of Isaiah the prophet, verse 38. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John's use of that passage in Isaiah 53 is fascinating. It's, it's, a, it's an Easter-type passage. The sort of passage we'll be looking at on Good Friday, I expect. It comes right in the middle of one of the servant songs. Do you remember when Isaiah is describing this, this figure who's going to come and do miraculous things? He's going to be unimpressive. And he's going to be laughable. 
And so, Lord, who has believed our message? The message of this servant who's going to be lifted up high and whose blood will sprinkle many nations. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That is, how have we seen his power? Isaiah continues, this servant who has no beauty, who will be despised and who will be rejected. And John says, yes, it sounds unimpressive. The message is weak. It looks unimpressive. The arm of the Lord, it looks weak. It looks feeble. But that's the way it's meant to be. And he's giving us a tantalising glimpse as well as to where the story's going. As Isaiah rolls on, and as John rolls on as well, we see with increasing, increasing clarity in Isaiah that he then says, well, he, this servant was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. They bring us peace. The Lord has laid upon this servant our sin. And so John, in this little verse here, isn't just telling us why people don't believe, because he looks unimpressive. He's telling us what's to come as well. What's this servant going to be like? Where's the story going? Well, it's going to verse 41. It's going to the cross, the place of weakness, of desperation. We saw it last week. The place of glory. And as Jesus is crucified, we're so in the topsy-turvy kingdom of God, he's lifted up not on a throne, but on a cross. And the crown he wears isn't of gold, it's of thorns. And it's there you see his glory most clearly. And Isaiah saw it. But the folk here will not see it. They will not see it. I think the pattern shows that there are similar things going on today. Where even in the face of good evidence, like verse 37 type stuff, people will not believe. It's fascinating. I don't know if you ever read online articles, particularly in sort of national press, that that give a positive spin on anything Christian. And then you scroll down to the comments section at the bottom. And if you're like me, your heart just drops. People are so angry and cross, and, and they see perhaps something in it, but you just see their hatred, their disdain of anything that seems to be coherent about the gospel. To the modern ear, it sounds crazy, as it did then. People want their individual freedom, they want their personal control, they want their self-realisation. I'm sorry, you believe that stuff? You think Jesus did the miraculous? You think he died on a cross and he rose again and you're building your life on that? And yet it's not just a question of stubbornness in the hearts of, I take it, friends now and of folk then as well. It's not just that they would not believe, but it was, remember, they could not believe. The Lord has blinded their eyes in verse 40. The Lord has hardened their hearts. And we say, well, there we go. It's not fair, is it? You can't blame them for it. How can the Lord be fair in doing that sort of stuff? How can he be culpable for their unbelief? Sorry, how can they be culpable for their unbelief? If, if he has caused it, they could not believe. And what do we say to them? Well, I think we say, look at verse 39. And look at the first three little words there. 
In the Greek it's just two. For this reason. So why does the Lord harden these people? Well, it's because they've hardened themselves in the first place. Because they've heard the message, they've seen the signs, and they say, no. No, no, it doesn't work. I don't believe it. They're like the people from Isaiah 53. It looks too weak and feeble. It doesn't seem to be that the Lord just arbitrarily hardens people. I'll harden you, and I'll soften you. No, it seems that the Lord hardens them because they've hardened themselves. Do you see that? He gives them what they want. If you were around before Christmas in the morning services, you might remember our time in Exodus. And we saw Pharaoh there. And it seems that I think something similar is going on to the folk here and to the Pharaoh that we saw in Exodus. Did you remember it? Um, It began with step one. Pharaoh's begins with a hard heart. And then step two, he hardens his own heart. And then step three, the Lord hardens it. Well, so here it seems that it starts with the sniggering at Jesus. Verse 38. He's performed the signs, but they won't believe it. And so what happens? Well, they are hardened. He can't be the God that he promised to be. He, he can't be the Messiah that's come. Say they're stony hearts. And so the Lord gives them what they want. For this reason, they are blinded. Their hearts are hardened. It seems to me that there's a number of applications that kind of spring out of that sort of idea. The first is that if you're not a Christian and you've been wrestling with the gospel and you know it to be true, then let me encourage you to believe now, to have faith now, to trust now, while you have the chance. Because if you harden yourself, then you may end up getting hardened. You may find that you're actually unable to believe. I spoke to somebody recently who said, well, I believe it, but... But, you know, I want to wait until I, I actually commit myself to it. Maybe in a few years' time. Maybe when it's a bit less costly. Maybe when there are less pressures on me to conform to a particular way of living. And in hindsight, I wish I'd have said, well, how do you know you'll be able to believe in a few years' time? How do you know that your heart won't have been hardened as you harden it now? The second thing as well, just sort of, springs out in my mind is that we oughtn't be surprised if people don't believe the reality is at times this is a judgement from God that they are, are getting what they want they've hardened themselves to him and so he, he says fine and he hardens them now that's hard to hear I take it at the same time we need to hear Jesus saying come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest he won't ever turn anybody away from him and yet if people keep on hardening themselves then he will harden them so it encourages me to pray pray for friends, pray for family, people particularly who have heard the gospel that actually that they won't keep hardening themselves and the Lord won't harden them maybe it's people in your office maybe it's people in your class or whoever it might be 
Pray that they would have eyes that can see, that a heart that is soft and understands. The folk here could not see. And we battle with that in our kind of a mindset. Because we think we were the one in charge. We're making the choices. And yet the Lord judges our first group. There's a second group though, from verse 42 to 43. A group you see who would not believe. It turns out that there were those who saw the signs, who perhaps followed Jesus around. There were leaders who who were convinced of something of his identity. But they're just not willing to put their heads up above the parapet. There's a fear of them being taken down, by the Pharisees particularly. They feared the consequences of following Jesus. And do you see why it is in verse 43? It's because they love human praise more than praise from God. Because what man thought of them was more important than what God thought of them. Maybe approval was where they found life, security, rather than approval from the one who made them. Rather than being in a relationship with God through Jesus. Maybe their their God was one of respectability. We're not really told what happens to them. We simply see Jesus is making waves, not just at the bottom of Judaism, but at the top. There were leaders who were fascinated by him, who believed in him. Not just the margins, but guys near the top. And as John unfolds, you might be thinking of Nicodemus. Do you remember him from back in chapter 3? He was Israel's teacher, the, the professor who comes to Jesus at night. He comes to question, he comes to interrogate Jesus. He knows there's something about him. And yet he ends up being humbled and baffles. Nicodemus comes again at the end of the Gospel. Uh, he, he turns up when Jesus has been crucified. It turns out he's come out of the darkness, out of the shadows, and into the light. Let me read to you from John 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And Nicodemus has inspired people down the ages. There are, um, church history tells us that there's a group called the Nicodemites, I've learnt recently. People who it seems are believers, but only privately. Not, not publicly. Have a look at this. There we go. This is the deposition by Michelangelo. He started it in 1547. He finished it, I think, in 1555. But the word goes, he smashed it because the marble uh, was wrong, so somebody else finished it off. And in it, you have got, if you can see, you've got the dead body of Jesus there. You've got Mary Magdalene. You've got Mary the Virgin. And at the back there with the head, you've got Nicodemus. And yet it's fascinating because those who are in the know, well, they consider the faith of Nicodemus actually to be the faith of Michelangelo. 
he has sculpted himself into um, the artwork. And so it's not utterly clear whether he was a Christian or not, but this piece, some say, say that perhaps he was. Something of a secret Christian, perhaps. I think we don't know much about these leaders who believe. We're not told much about them. We don't quite know where they stand, but maybe we are meant to hold out hope that there are people like Nicodemus or Joseph at the end. It does raise issues for us, though. It's a complicated matter. Questions for us in our day, in our situation. Just a few thoughts to help us thinking about secret believers, uh, fearing man more than we fear God. First one to say is that there is a difference between a personal faith and a private faith. That is, we're all to have a personal faith. It might be a private thing in some sense, but a personal faith isn't quite the same as a private faith. A personal faith, I take it, is primarily personal because we have a relationship with God as a person. Perhaps better with three persons. So we're to have a personal faith, and that is not the same as a private faith. The second thing to think of as well is that fear of man more than fear of God that means that we keep quiet perhaps too often is tempting for many of us but as far as I take it it's not right. Many folk I speak to are aware of this the pressure to to not speak up. Uh, Sorry, the pressure to speak up but to keep quiet. And we're different and some of us will be bolder Some of us will find it easier just to get into conversations about the Lord and to point people to him. Some of us will just kind of blurt stuff out. But the norm is that our faith will be spoken of. One of the best pieces of advice given to me on starting a new job was actually someone praying for me in a group that I would very quickly nail my colours to the mast as a Christian. Because you will know as well as I that when you start a new job it gets longer and harder and harder and harder to tell people that you're a Christian until it gets slightly embarrassing when you haven't really told anybody. So let me encourage you to be bold, to, to tell your colleagues as quickly as possible. I've not read it, but I'm told by lots of friends that this is a good book, if this is something that's particularly relevant for you. It's called When People Are Big and God Is Small. I know a number of people who are sort of paralysed by fear of man have been helped by this, trying to diagnose what it is that paralyses them. Why... Man is so scary, as opposed to God. So let me encourage you with that one. And the third thing just to say about the secret believers as well, and fear of man and fear of God, is that globally it gets more complicated. Some of you will have already, your your minds will have zoomed off to, well, what about places where you might be persecuted or killed for being a Christian? Is it better for you to publicly practice your faith and know that you might be locked up or murdered for it? Or is it better for you to quietly go about your business perhaps meeting and worshipping and evangelising in secret. Let's chat over coffee. I'm not sure I've got a particularly straightforward or a simple answer for that one. I'm not sure the passage gives us one, and I'm sure there are different contexts for different people, different wisdom. But it seems to me from this passage, from the Bible as a whole, that for the Christian, the norm ought to be a public, personal faith. So for us, in the office, or in your house, or whatever it is for you, being sensitively honest and straightforward and open about who you are seems to be the norm. If you're a vegetarian, 
and you won't eat meat, that's probably whether you're in, in private or in public. So it strikes me that if we're Christians, then wherever we are, we're Christians. So for some, they could not believe. For others, they would not believe. The final bit, we see that they should have believed. So John says in this final bit, when you look at Jesus, verse 45, then you see the one who sent him. And he says, when you hear Jesus, verse 49 and 50, so you hear the one who sent him, and so you can have life, because God the Father can give you life. Okay, so when you look at Jesus, and when you hear Jesus, then you see and you hear the one who sent him. And I take it, the problem is preconceptions can blind us to what we're actually seeing. We've already seen they looked and they listened, but they weren't persuaded by what they saw because it wasn't what they expected to see. There's an article in the paper about this time last year to do with preconceptions and the way that they blind us to reality. There was an experiment carried out. Um, and it showed that it actually they could cure some of these preconceptions um, to make us more open to things. So the experiment was based in Australia and it was all to do with zapping people's brains. I'm not going to beat around the bush. It was gently zapping them, but it was definitely zapping brains. And then what you would do is you would get different groups of people to do a different task. And those who had been zapped turned out to be much, much better at solving this task. They were able to think outside the box more, to not be so constrained by uh, the information and the ideas that they brought with them. So the professor who was undertaking the experiment said, uh, our perceptions, memory and decisions are based on filtered information. We view the world top-down through concepts or mental templates which are built up from our past experience. So you approach a problem and the, the, the stuff that you brought with you from the past factors how you will deal with this problem, this new information. And it seems to be one of the big reasons people have problems with Jesus, as we've seen week after week after week, is they couldn't comprehend who he was, because he didn't fit into their categories. He wasn't what they expected. He claims to be divine. They try and kill him. They were able to look at Jesus, but not to see who he really was. We saw it back in chapter 5. It says... Horribly challenging words, he says to the Pharisees, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, for them it was possible to read the Bible diligently and to miss who it was really all about. And so it seems to be possible to, to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, and to miss who he really is. From day one, John's claim has been, this is the creator taking on flesh, and for a time coming to live among his people. And he and the Father are so closely intertwined together, so unified that you see Jesus, you see the Father. God is, in some senses, Jesus-shaped. And you hear Jesus, and you hear the Father. God, in some senses, sounds like Jesus. And so you believe in Jesus, well then you believe in the Father, the one who sent him. 
He comes with his authority. He comes speaking the very words of God. And words are powerful. We know that in our own lives. You know from a very young age that words are powerful. You know that words like more bring you some kind of power when you're tiny. Or words like potty bring you certain kinds of power when you're tiny. And we sing in the playground, sticks and stones may break my bones and words will never hurt me. And we know it's not true because we carry those hurts with us for the rest of our lives. And words are incredibly powerful. They matter immensely in our world. And so the words of Jesus. They will divide people. They divided people then. They will divide people in the future. Verse 47 and 48. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. So when Jesus first came, it was all about a rescue plan. He was coming, he was putting a broken world back together again. He was going to the cross, he was going to show us the glory of God. He's going to serve his people by dying for them, taking upon himself their sin, God's anger against their sin, so they might have life. It wasn't about judging the world for his first coming. Although again in John chapter 5 we'll see that he is the one who will judge. And so those who reject his words will be finally rejected by him because they've rejected the one who sent him, the Father. What you do with his words in this life will will divide people. Some will be condemned and some will have eternal life. Life life that starts now and goes on for eternity. Life forever. Verse 49. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. If we follow his commands, we have eternal life. One of my favourite popular level books on John's Gospel is a book called Real Life Jesus. I think the last copy has just gone from the back a couple of weeks ago. It's by a a guy called Mike Kane. He did the recent Oiku missions in town, if any of you saw that or were around for that. He uses this brilliant illustration that captures ever so slightly bizarrely something of what life in John is all about. This, This eternal life here. That Jesus finishes with. So he says, imagine you're a whale. And you're feeling whale. You are enormous. And you're swimming in the sea. And and that is where you can be fully whale. That's where you can be who you're meant to be. That's where you can be who you are. And yet when this amazing graceful animal is beached out of water, it is stuck. And you need to get people digging. You need the fire services. You need to keep them wet. You need a crane to winch this enormous whale back into the sea. And he says, naturally that's us. And we're thrashing around on the sand and we're gasping for air, but we think we're living. We think we can get by without God. We think we're okay. We think we're having fun. We think this is what it's all about. But we're stuck on a beach. 
We don't realise that we were created to swim. We don't realise that we were made for something more. We don't realise we were made for life. And he says that something more is to be in a relationship with the one who made us. That is where we have life. That is what we were made for. And we look for life in friends. And good example results. And laughing and alcohol and family and iPods and music and beaches and holidays and boyfriends and girlfriends or husbands and wives and pensions and retirement funds and, and all that kind of stuff. And we think they will give us life. But Jesus says, no, without him we're just thrashing around on the beach. And we don't really have it. And so he urges us at the end of this, this public teaching in John to listen to his words to listen to Jesus' life-giving words. Because as you do that, and as you believe in him and you trust in him, we'll say you have life. Life now and life forever.